We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 today. We, this is the midpoint of the book of Luke. There's 24 chapters, so we are right in the middle, moving quickly through this incredible book. And as we finish at the end of May, I hope that you won't forget Luke, but keep going back to it. As with Romans, as I preach that, and Psalms, as we're going to be jumping into in the summer months. But I just want to encourage you to love this book. I have. It's because it's we're face to face with the Savior in the book of Luke. It's the story of Him. So how could you not love it? It's a great book. We're going to be, again, in chapter 12, but I want to point you back to last week, chapter 11, and the disciples' prayer, if you remember last Sunday. It's the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples to pray. It's really for us. It's the way that we should pray. It's a model for us to follow. And a lot of those elements that were in the disciples' prayer are going to appear today in chapter 12. Starting out with Father, Abba, dear, our dearest Father. There's that endearment, there's that intimacy that is, as we pray, that we're drawn into by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, in the book of Romans and Galatians, says it helps us to cry out, Abba, Father, to depend upon Him. He gives us things because He wants to. That was the story of last week. It's not begrudgingly and because we're pestering Him when we come to prayers, because He loves us. He wants to do things that benefit us for our good. It doesn't mean He's going to give us everything we ask for, because that's not true of any loving Father, is it? But because He loves us, He knows what's best for us, and He wants that in our lives. So that element's going to be there today, giving us our daily bread, the basic needs of our life, trusting God to provide those things. We're going to see that today. Letting go of things. In the disciples' prayer, we are forgiven of our sins, so we're encouraged then to forgive others. What does forgive mean? It means we let go of things that we could hold as grudge between in relationship. I could hold on to this, and I could get angry, and I could get bitter, but forgiveness means I'm going to let go of it. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to realize how much He's forgiven me, and I'm going to let go of the things that I want to hang on to. We're going to see today the idea of letting go, not worrying about things, not clutching on to and being greedy with things, but this idea of letting go. It's in today's passage. And then the idea of the kingdom, thy kingdom come. That's the way the prayer ended in Luke 11 last week. The kingdom, it's here. We're living it. We have a king. We're living in His kingdom now, but it's not yet. It's not fully everything that He's promised us. There's so much more awaiting us after this life, but there's so much here. There's so much of life here and now. That's the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. It's not just life in heaven with Him, which is fantastic, but the abundant life is right here every day as we trust Him and we just simply follow Him. That's an abundant life. So these are the themes that we're going to see today. Today's passage has to do with four attitudes that we need to avoid. When we're living in this kingdom, when we're following Jesus, what are four attitudes or things we need to get rid of? These things are, in kind of in the order that we're going to see them in chapter 12, greed, that ugly word of greed, followed by worry, they're related, then fear, we're going to see that, and then finally, selfishness. Those are four kind of ugly attitudes that I just simply need to get rid of 
in my life and trust God and follow Him. That's how life in the kingdom needs to look. So let's look at the first one, greed, verses 13 to 21 of chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Do you get the sense there? Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable, as Jesus often did. He told stories. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I'm emphasizing the my and me and my. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Wow. There, it starts with a demand in verse 13 and 14. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, teacher. It's not a reasoned discussion. It's not, let's sit down and talk about this inheritance thing. It's a demand. Tell him. I don't know about you, but when people come to me with a demand, have you, you understand the difference there? Do this or else type thing. How do you respond to that? Probably the same way I do, not very well. It's like, really? And that was kind of the attitude here. It was a demand. Tell my brother to give him my share of the inheritance. This idea of inheritance in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21, it speaks of that. And, and when a father would die, his inheritance would go to his son's. It would be divided equally, except that the firstborn would get a double portion of the inheritance. So we don't know exactly what was going on here, what the deal was with the inheritance, but the one son felt like he wasn't getting his fair share, and so he wanted to pull Jesus into this argument. In their days, the rabbis customarily gave decisions on disputed points of law. So them asking the rabbi, Jesus, to help out, it wasn't unheard of at all. In fact, it was rather common. But Jesus refuses to act on his request for different reasons. Number one, Jesus realized it's not his job. His job is to bring people to God. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's Luke 19.10, isn't it? That's his job, not to give property to men and divide it out amongst men. It's just not his job to do this. It's not his time There will be a day where Jesus will be the judge, where he will be the arbiter, where he will stand and we will give an account of ourselves to him. That's in the future. But now he came to seek and to save the lost, to be the Savior. So it's not his time. But he also sees behind the request or the demand, actually, to the heart of the individual asking. He realizes this is not in the best interest of the man. He saw in the man an attitude of greed that needed to be addressed. 
So he gives him a warning in verse 15. He says, watch out, be on your guard. Watch out, there's a danger here that you need to be aware of. Be on your guard, take an action to ward off a foe. That's what that word means. There's an enemy here, there's a danger that you need to be aware of, greed. It's out there. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Greed comes in many forms, shapes, and sizes, Jesus says. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's glaringly obvious, but greed comes in all shapes and sizes. But be on your guard and watch out. So what is, what is greed? Well, it's a lot of things, really. It's a grasping after more and more, just this unending desire for more. It's a desire for anything that lacks the kingdom of God as its motivation. Selfishness at the heart, at the core of it. It's keeping resources that God brings your way for yourself. That's greed. Again, it's holding on when we should be letting go. Just like forgiveness. When I hold a grudge, I'm holding on to something that I should be letting go of and trusting God with. And that's the same issue here with greed. Ecclesiastes 5.10 gives us probably the best definition of what greed is. Whoever loves money never has enough. Is that true? Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. That's the story of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, meaninglessness. But that's really what, at the heart of what greed is. It's never being satisfied. Colossians 3, 5 puts greed in a, in a pretty strong category. Look what it says in Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, the old man. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Oh, wow. That's on, that's on the bottom of that pretty strong and pretty ugly list, which is idolatry. Okay, there's the heart of it. Why? There's a great quote by Walter Liefeld, and I wanted to put this up on the PowerPoint because I think it nails it pretty good. Greed seeks possessions which are not to be equated with true living. In fact, they become a substitute for the proper object of man's search and worship, which is God. Greed is takes the place of what we should be seeking after, what we should be worshiping, which is God, and it inserts something else into that place. That's what greed really is. I find it interesting if you think about the Ten Commandments. First four deal with our relationship with God. The next six deal with our relationship with our neighbor. Love God with all your heart, soul. We saw that last week. With all your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? And then love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Ten Commandments. And it lists those out, right? But what is number 10 in the Ten Commandments? Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. Now, I find it interesting that that is the finality of the 10. And I think it's important because I think it summarizes an important point, and it's this. If we fall for that one, the coveting, we're going to lose sight of God, loving God, We're going to worship something other than God. We're going to insert another God in place of Him. And we're going to become so mindful of ourselves we forget about our neighbor. It makes total sense, doesn't it? It's a perfect summary of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet stuff. 
because it affects your relationship with God, your relationship with your neighbor. So that's important. In verse 15b, he gives a principle. He says, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions or stuff. Even if you could amass this huge amount of things, nothing wrong with that necessarily, but Jesus wants us to know that does not equal life. In fact, the sermon title, to have or to live, question mark. Is it about having or is it really about living? It's about living. It's not about the abundance of possessions. Kent Hughes is one of my favorite writers. I have one of his commentaries. And he gives this story, and I wanted to read this to you. And maybe you've experienced this. It says, a story that my college English professor related to the freshman class sounded like it had been scripted by Tennessee Williams, but it was her own real-life drama. She and her five sisters had grown up in a small Midwestern town during the Depression where her father, despite the difficulties of the time, rose to become a successful banker. She had gone off to a university, but her sister stayed close to home, married and settled down. She likewise married, but taught out on the West Coast. When her aging father died, she and her husband hurried home for the funeral. As they comforted her poor mother, they noticed in moot amazement that everything in the house had been tagged by the other sisters with their names. Judy, Margaret, Annie. She and her husband were appalled but said nothing. The table was set, dinner was served amidst the mounting tension and awkward conversation. There were long periods of acrimonious silence. Then her husband stood, stepped behind her mother's chair and said, everyone's tagged what they want. We're placing our tag on what we want. And he placed his hands on their poor mother's shoulders. Greed is always ugly. Covetousness can turn a family's mutual mourning into a gathering of hatred. Wow. Notice how greed just kind of crept in there, and that's what it was all about, what I can get, and making sure my name is on it and it's tagged. How sad is that, and how unfortunate that greed had ruined that. But I love what Jesus does. Instead of serving as judge, he says, I want to teach something here. Instead of calling the guy out by name and humiliating him in front of everybody, Jesus tells a story. He doesn't put this guy in the story, but he's, we're assuming, but he's very graceful here. And he wants everybody to learn something, so that's why he tells the story. And again, the farmer in the story is not portrayed as a wicked farmer, but a foolish farmer. It's important to note that the farmer was wealthy before the crop of abundance happened. He was already there. God had blessed him greatly. He was a wealthy man. And on top of that then, there was this great crop, the bumper crop that came. And he has this wonderful problem of so much stuff he didn't have enough room for. So what do I do? And he begins to plan. So he's portrayed as a fool. Why? There's three reasons, really, that we see in this passage why he's a fool. Number one... Because, I want to point out, it's not because of his money. It's not because he, of his planning. In fact, in Scripture, money is good. Planning is stewardship is a very important principle in living the Christian life, isn't it? So it's not about the money. What is it that made him a fool? Number one, it's the focus on himself. 
And as I read that parable, eight times in verses 17 through 19, he uses the words, I, myself, it's all about me. The unholy trinity, right? We hear that, me, myself, and I. There's no concept there, zero of God. There's no concept of anybody outside of himself. It's just me. That's what was in his heart. He's only thinking about himself. God was the one who had provided the crop. God was the one who made him wealthy in the first place before the crop. But yet there's no concept of giving thanks to God. And there's no concept now of, oh my goodness, I have all this abundance. I can be blessing people. No. He wants to build more barns so he can store more. He's missing the point, isn't it? So his focus was on himself. Second reason he's a fool, because not for making provision for the future. That's wisdom. Investing wisely is good. Handling money wisely is a beautiful thing. It's not about that, but because he believes that by his wealth he can secure his future. He's trusting in the wealth. That's the problem. It's not the wealth. It's not about planning for the future. That's good. It's he believes that because of his wealth, he's good to go. Eat, drink, and be merry. Hedonism, self-indulgence, all of that sort of thing is, is listed in there. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25. Our men's group is going through this great book right now, and it's this book just kept coming up as I was going through this Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes. Look what it says in Ecclesiastes 2, 24, 25. Something very similar, but something very different. This eat, drink, and be merry. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Sounds a little bit like eat, drink, and be merry, doesn't it? This too, I see, is where? It's from the hand of God. For without Him, who can? eat or find enjoyment. Here's the difference. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's fine. But he points out something very important. God's in the mix. It's from God's hands. It's praise Him for the provision that He's given me, and He's in my mind. This eat, drink, and be merry thing that just leaves God out of it, it's a dead-end road. You know, retiring is a good thing. People talk about, is retirement in Scripture? The answer to that is not really. I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. One is because I think in their culture, this idea of having that much extra money was a little bit different than it is today. Um, nothing wrong with retiring. It's a good thing. But what are you retiring to? Are you retiring to a life of self-indulgence and all about me, are you retiring for the purpose of God's kingdom and to invest in other people's lives? That's really the question here. That's really something that we need to think about. The third reason he was a fool is because he wasn't rich toward God. In verse 21 there at the end, Jesus says, here's his problem. He wasn't rich toward God. He wasn't rich where God is concerned. He wasn't investing in God's kingdom. He was investing only in his own kingdom. He was only laying up treasure here, not there. How we view the future affects how we live today. Is that true? How we view the future affects how we live today. Wow. So true. So true in this man's life. 
Don't be greedy, Jesus says. But he's going to follow it up with a second command. Don't worry. Verses 22 to 31. Look what it says there. Then Jesus, it's like he's speaking to thousands of people here, telling this parable. Then he just turns to his disciples in verse 22 there. Then Jesus says to his disciples, from thousands down to 12 here, therefore I tell you, disciples, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow, they do not reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after those things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given you as well. Greed can never get enough. Worry is afraid it might not have enough. It's really the same thing. It feeds into the next. Therefore, I tell you, if you're greedy, you're going to be worrying all the time. Two issues that can keep us worried that he talks about in this section. Basic needs, basic food and clothing. There it is, the basic stuff that we all need. But he brings in another one, life and our length of life, how long we live and things like that. Concerning life in verse 22 and 23, you know, our advertisements, if you think about it, what do they really do? They create greed, maybe. They give us worries that we maybe didn't have before. Or they make us think we really need something that we don't. If you think about what advertising really is, it's at the end of the day, it's to get you to buy a product, to give money to a particular company, and so it's all about that. And if we let our minds feed into that too much, it can just draw us into things and we begin worrying about things and coming up with needs that we really don't even have in the first place that are created because of the advertisements. Jesus says, life is more than a good meal, it's more than a nice outfit, and it's more than spending your and wasting your time worrying about them. It's life. Enjoy it. Concerning food in verses 24 to 26, he says, consider the ravens. Think about it, these birds. Ravens were common. They were everywhere. They weren't special by any means, and they were unclean. They were scavenger birds. So they weren't beautiful things that, you know, maybe a robin or something more beautiful, but consider the ravens. In Psalm 147.9, even in the Old Testament, this is there. Psalm 149 says he provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. God's provision is there for the cattle and for these ravens, these birds of the air. They live according to their God-provided capabilities, and then God takes care of them. 
you are more valuable than they. He's arguing from lesser to greater. He's going to do this twice. Ravens are important to God. He provides for their needs, but guess what? You, much more important than a bird. Why? I think with us, there's a double paternity. With the bird, we share this with birds. Both of us have God as our Father Creator. He created us all. They are creatures. We are creatures. He's our Creator. We share that. But there's a difference with us and them, and this is the second part, the Father Regenerator. He's our Father. We are born into His family. We are children of God. That's what makes us special. We're in a special relationship with our Father that the animals do not have. As wonderful as they are, incredible as they are, they don't have that. Two things about worry here in these verses, verse 24 to 26. Number one, worry insults God in His provision. It's saying to God, I don't trust, I don't believe that you're going to provide for me. That's what worry really is, isn't it? It really insults God. Worry defies reality. He says in verse 25 and 6, he says, which you by worrying can add anything to your life, a day, an hour? The answer to that is we can't. It defies reality, this worrying. It can't lengthen your life. In fact, the reality worry, if you think about it, can actually shorten your life, can't it? Because stress can build up in your life and it can actually knock days off, and the medical community tells us that is true. So we need to be aware of that, but we definitely can't add to our life. Concerning clothing in verses 27 and 28, he says, consider how the wild flowers grow. Jesus would have, just walking around with his disciples, he would have picked these flowers, he would have smelled the flowers, he would have watched the beauty of these flowers as they sprang up each year. Around my house, the first signs of spring, and you probably see crocuses come, and then daffodils, right? They're kind of that first sign that spring is, spring is trying to come this year. It's, it's having a little difficulty with all the snow and the cold weather, but it's coming, and you can see the flowers grow. And they're just, one of the things I used to love about living down in Monmouth when I was down there, I would be driving down in the valley, and there's just these huge fields, and out in the fields were just bunches of wild daffodils everywhere. And they would just spring up every spring, and they were beautiful. And nobody had to go and water them. Nobody had to go and, you know, spend time fertilizing them or anything. They just grew. And that's the story of wildflowers. They simply exist without worry or concern. They trust, and they're provided for. Flowers represent temporal things. This idea in Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8, it says, A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and their, un- their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass, it withers, the flowers fall. Because the breath of the Lord blows on them, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord, it endures forever. There's things that are temporal, there's things that are eternal. As beautiful and amazing as the flowers are, they're very much temporal. And in Jesus' culture in that day, they lacked a lot of wood to use as fuel, so they used dried grass. And so he talks about it being thrown into the fire. It was just kind of used to, as a, something to warm them with. 
it was a temporal thing, and it's not meant to put our hearts into it. If God cares for the temporal things, lesser to greater, right? The flowers of the field temporal, then he's, He cares greatly for you because you're not. You're going to be with Him for all eternity, disciples. So He cares greatly for you. There's a big difference. You of little faith there in verse 28. Little faith in what? Well, in God's Word, in God's provision that He's providing for you, you're lacking faith, and in His sovereignty. He's in control of all this. He's going to do it. When we lack faith, this is what comes out. We don't trust Him. His Word, His sovereignty, His care, His provision, ye of little faith. Then he goes into a negative example in verses 29 to 30. He says, do not, do not set your heart on what you eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Worry does a couple things in these verses. Number one, it projects the worst. How many of you tend to be kind of worst-case scenario type people? Okay. There's all, you know, hey, some of us are, you know, the glass is half full, some of the glass is half empty. Um, some of us just tend to go there naturally, projecting the worst. And that's a little bit what worry does. I found this illustration that I just wanted to read because it's beautiful. Here it is. Several years a woman had been having trouble to sleep at night because she feared of burglars. Okay. It's a realistic concern, I guess. One night her husband heard a noise in the house, so he went downstairs to investigate. When he got there, he found a burglar. Good evening, said the man in the house. I'm pleased to see you. Here's what he said. Come upstairs and meet my wife. She's been waiting 10 years to meet you. Finally, her worst fear has been realized. That's what worry does. 10 years of worrying about a burglar and wasting all that time. Think about that. And that's what worry does in our life, isn't it? it, it we spend so much time and energy, worst case scenario, you know, scenario. We don't need to. God's there with us, isn't he? It projects the worst, but it also loads the present with the weight of the future. You know, living life has enough pressure and weight on it, doesn't it? Just doing what we do as parents, going to work, trying to make ends meet, living in this crazy world, there's enough pressure just living experiential day to day. What happens when we load tomorrow's weight onto today's life? It becomes unbearable, doesn't it? It just all of a sudden becomes this load that we can't bear. Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 6, the very last part of that verse, 34, he says, each day has enough trouble of its own, for goodness sake. Don't worry about tomorrow. You've got enough to worry about, enough load today. Don't pile stuff tomorrow on there. Oh, my goodness. You can't do that. But he gives a positive example. So don't set your heart on the things that we tend to worry about. That's the negative. But what's the positive? Seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given you as well. That's the positive. Seek him. Our focus is to be on his kingdom, not ours. And what happens when we put our focus on that is it liberates us from the worry because we realize we already have his kingdom. We already serve a king. So guess what? He's going to provide for us. It's going to be okay. And then he says, all these things will be given you as well. What are all these things? Well, it's 
in the context of what he's been talking about. Food, clothing, your basic needs, the things that we tend to worry about, he's gonna provide those things. Now, sometimes this verse gets taken out of context, as we do with a lot of verses, and we read more into than what's intended. And sometimes people will take this, you know, if we seek his kingdom, then we're going to become wealthy because it says all these things will be given you as well, and we're just going to have this load of stuff. Well, no. Again, what's the context say? The basic needs, God's going to provide those. It's not a promise of prosperity theology that, you know, hey, you know, as long as you trust God and follow his kingdom, you're going to get rich and famous and wealthy. There's no promise like that in scripture. So please don't take it out of context, but there is the promise of providing what we need. Give us each day our daily bread, right? Daily bread. And we won't worry about tomorrow. Verse 32 talks about fear. We've had greed, worry. Look at verse 32. Do not be afraid little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Do not be afraid. Again, that is the most often repeated command in all of Scripture. Do not fear. It's there, isn't it? Because when we're greedy, when we're worrying about everything, guess what creeps in right along with that? They're all part of the same family. It's fear. And I love Jesus' words. He says, little flock, You're small in numbers. There's 12 of you. You're not a big group right now. But it also, the word flock says, you're sheep under my care. You're sheep, I'm the shepherd. You're dependent, and I'm all-powerful. I'm going to provide for you. That's That's the illustration that Jesus is giving. And he says, your father. He's kind of mixing metaphors a little bit. He doesn't say your shepherd, but he says your father, Abba. This is the one that we're to be praying to in Luke chapter 11. Our Father, Abba, our dearest Father. He cares, He knows, He loves us. He's a, he hears our needs. We have that intimate relationship with Him. He's pleased to give you the kingdom. It's delighting Him to, giving, to give us all of Him, His kingdom, and to give us a kingdom focus. So don't fear, little flock. Look back up in chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. There are things that we should fear. There are legitimate fears in life. Look what Jesus said in verses 4 to 7. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Really? I'm a little bit afraid of that. Someone wants to take my life. Okay, so what's he saying here? But I will show you whom you should fear. Here's a legitimate fear, okay? Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Whoa. God. There's a fear of God that's legitimate and important. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Proverbs 1, verse 7. Wow, that's some pretty... Yes, I tell you, fear him. Respect God. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. A healthy fear of our God is good because it draws us to Him, and it draws us to our need, and helps gets, gets us on our knees where we belong. 
That's a healthy fear. But when we're in relationship with Him, once we come to know Him, He is our Father. He's going to take care of us. We don't need to fear things. He's our provider. He is sovereign. He is king. So there's fear that's legitimate. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Power, because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, God's very presence. Love, because we have the Holy Spirit teaching us and to love other people. We have God's heart towards other people. Power, love, and sound mind. I think sometimes our world's a little crazy. Do you ever feel that way? We've kind of lost our mind. Guess what? When we know God, when we know what's true, when we're in a relationship with Him, we can be clear in our thinking. We can have a sound mind. And we can be self-disciplined, depending on your translation there in 2 Timothy 1.7. Self-discipline is also there, self-control. It's a good thing. Sometimes I think we lose our minds because we lose sight of God and the realities that He has for us. So please, don't be greedy. Don't worry about things. Do not fear. And the last one, do not be selfish. Verses 33 to 34, he ends up this section. He says, sell your possessions. Give to the poor. Wow, okay. Right off the bat. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Those are the two things that might take away things that we have. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The last thing we need to avoid, number four, is this selfishness. A life of giving liberates us from greed, worry, and fear. We begin to loosen our grip on the things that we hold on to and we begin to share with those that are needy. Now, it's want to point out, as he's speaking to the 12, many of them had already kind of done this. They had already kind of sold off some of their things, given up a lot of their possessions, and it literally had begun to follow him. So this idea of divesting, sell your stuff, give to the poor, wow. What he's saying, don't be dominated by possessions, loosen your grip, share with the needy. He doesn't expect them, and I don't think Jesus is saying to us either here today, just get rid of everything and live a destitute life. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Rather, he's saying shift your perspective off of that, the possessions, and see giving now as a measure of wealth and accumulating possessions as an on-need basis. Live with what you need. Learn to give. Look for needs out there in the community and begin to just give to that. A trust of possessions prevents a trust in our Savior, in Jesus Christ. If my trust is in that, it won't be on Him. And that's what He's saying. Divest. But He also says to invest. Provide purses that will not wear out and treasure in heaven that will never fail. These are eternal things. I know purses wear out, right, ladies? <laughs> Patty just 
brought home a new purse just a couple days ago because the old one's kind of wearing out. The straps start to fall apart. So what is, what is he saying, provide purses? For a guy, I, I don't connect with that. So what is this purse thing all about? Purses are where treasures were stored. It's simply where you would store them. In fact, if you go back to chapter 10, Jesus sent the disciples out and he says, don't go out with a money belt, your purse. Trust me. That was that little pouch that they would have their money in. They would carry money around. It'd be like a wallet or a purse. But he says, purses that will never wear out. Treasure in heaven. Giving away on earth creates interest in heaven. Think about that for a second. When we give, when we invest in the kingdom of God, we earn interest in heaven. It's kind of the opposite, really. It's if we sit down here on this earth and just hoard stuff to myself, the interest in heaven goes away. It's the opposite of how we would think of how interest works. In the bank, you've got to have cash in there. The more, the better, right? And the more interest it accumulates, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's good. But in God's kingdom, giving away, trusting me to provide, builds interest for all eternity. That's the treasure in heaven. Verse 34 is that universal principle. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. We've kind of gone full circle. We're back to the issue of what we value. With greed, it was the fool, the rich fool, where he told the parable. What did he value? Stuff. Now we're back here full circle to this idea where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What do you value? Our treasure consists of treasure, time, talents, the things that God has given us. These are all good things. Time is good. Treasure is good. Talents are good. They're a gift from God. So what are we encouraged to do in Scripture? We're encouraged to invest them. We're encouraged to use them wisely. But we're to do this with God in mind and others in mind. Where your treasure is there, your heart is also. The two go together. The nature of our heart is reflected in the things we value most. Wow. What do I really value the most? It's reflected then. That's in my heart. You are what you love. Do you believe that to be true? Where your heart is, there will your treasure are. You are who, what you love, whatever that thing is. In conclusion, I just want to point out a couple things. The Lord has nothing against wealth, per se. I want you to hear that. In the Scriptures, in the book of James and the book of Luke, they're pretty hard on the wealthy. Well, the reason is because oftentimes in that culture, the wealthy would be the ones taking advantage of those who were poor. And so they wanted them to hear God's message to them. And so they came down pretty hard on the rich. But money in and of itself is not bad. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6, we know the passage, the love of money is the root of all evil. It's when my heart goes that direction and becomes greedy. That's the problem. It's not the money at all. Investing our wealth, good stewardship are strongly encouraged throughout Scripture. It's just living wisely, and that's part of what we're encouraged to do. We're going to continue to offer Dave Ramsey classes here, financial peace. It's a good thing. How do I invest? How do I steward 
My finance is for the Lord. There's the key. It's not just for me. It's for His kingdom so that I can bless other people. That's where it needs to go. When you are blessed, I want to encourage you to do two things. Number one, give worship to God. That was what was lacking by the rich fool. Worship God. Thanks. Secondly, give. Give worship and give generously to others. When you plan for the future, think eternally. Think in terms of God's kingdom and eternal and riches in heaven. Think eternally, but also think terminally. What do I mean by that? Sounds kind of sad. By that I mean think in terms of the fact that this life on earth does not last forever. It comes to an end. A man is not really ready to live until he's ready to die. Do you believe that? I think it's true. Have we squared things up with our Savior? (laughs) Number one. Until that's taken care of, okay, I'm not really ready to live here yet. I've come to give you life, an abundant life, Jesus said, now, as well as all eternity. So square it up now. So think eternally, think terminally. Enjoy your possessions, but keep them in perspective. They're nice. I love things. I don't, you know, they're wonderful. I'm thankful for the things that I have, but I need to keep them in perspective. Whether you have much or little, hold it loosely. That's the message of this. Don't tight fist it. Be willing to let it go for different things, for different reasons, but because you're trusting. And I want to end with this thought. Oftentimes when we preach Scripture, we preach things that are just moral truths, and that's great. I want you to hear that, okay? These are four moral truths. We need to avoid these four things in our lives. And I want you to hear that. That's how we live in the kingdom of God. But what I don't want you to miss and what I don't want you to hear is that's what the Christian life is all about, just doing things or not doing things. That's not what the Christian life is about. It's about trust. We trust God. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We follow him first and foremost. Then out of our life of faith and trust comes this life that we live, these moral truths that are important for living in the kingdom of God that are important because we receive a blessing from God when we live this way, but they're not a checklist in pleasing God. And I want you to hear that. What's more important is trusting God, putting our faith in Him, and living in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that first and foremost, then, hey, you can live a worry-free life and a greed-free life, but be not pleasing to God. Do you hear that? Put your faith and trust in Lord Jesus Christ. If you are sitting here today and haven't done that, I want to encourage you, please come talk to me, Josh, Mark. I know they'd love to talk to you. Ron, Phil, and others. I just want to encourage you, come. Please ask us after the service. We'd love to talk to you about that. So yes, don't be greedy. Don't worry. Don't fear. Don't be selfish. But the power to do all those things comes from our relationship with the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so that's the message of today. Thank you.